0: This is episode 108 of Reconcile the Isle.
1: What on earth is going on? Rocket man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations.
0: Thousands of cases. Charlottesville.
1: Horrific shooting.
0: Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires.
1: Entire ecosystems are collapsing.
0: Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren LaGiudice. Today, we're welcoming special guest, Dr. Daniel Holtz. Daniel Holtz is the postdoctoral fellow at Oregon State University's Center for the Humanities. As a historian of U.S. political culture, intellectual history, and U.S. foreign policy, Dr. Holtz focuses on conservatism and white supremacy in the 19th and 20th centuries. She is currently working on a book manuscript about racial nationalism and American politics based on her dissertation, Who Were the True Conservatives? A Critical History of American Conservatism in the 19th Century. She received her Ph.D. in History from the University of Pennsylvania in 2017 She also served as the assistant editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Military and Diplomatic History, published in 2013. If you've wondered if American politics was always as crazy as it is today and don't know who to trust for an informed opinion, then this episode is for you. Stay around until the end to hear about this episode's giveaway. And you can always sign up at com slash podcast to get the link to all the wonderful things that my podcast and I give away for free to subscribers. And you also get reminders when we publish this every other week. Today, I'm going to do the interview. My co-host Melania Trump, how do you feel about that? She reads books, which is offensive to the Trump family. Didn't some of you graduate from like Ivy League schools, though? What does that have to do with me? Jeez, Melania. Okay. All right. So let's get to the interview with Dr. Daniel Holtz. (sighs) Let's jump uh, right into it, Danny. There seems to be this idea that there was a time in American politics where everyone could speak calmly and intelligently about the most difficult of topics, that we had a national discourse, that there was a time it's always like hearkening back to this time of polite conversation. And I wanted to talk to you today about if that is a fantasy (laughs) in our minds, (laughs) and I think
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. That doesn't cover it.
0: So there is
1: this kind of idea of like a pristine moment in U.S. history where surely people were able to communicate without the kind of uh, violent rhetoric you see today. And the truth is that's that's just never been the case. There's never been a point in U.S. history where everyone was just chill and getting along in Congress. There's a book that came out recently by Joanne Freeman, who's at Yale, called Field of Blood. Um, and she looks at violence in antebellum Congress, like literally people beating each other up, threatening each other with Bowie knives, threatening each other with pistols, walking by each other in the street and being like, so if in Congress, in the congressional record, if you say to someone tomorrow, I'm going to be at the corner of this street and this street with my friends, you're basically challenging them to a fight. And this is so what one of the things she's looking at is the way that that kind of violent language creates a particular context with where people maintain power. It's
0: always been like that. And so people were like flat out slapping each other on the Senate floor. Yeah, people. So someone
1: there's like duels that happen off the Senate floor, but also there's actual violence. So the most famous uh, being the caning of Charles Sumner. So she talks about this in the book as well, that someone is beaten to a bloody pulp to near death on the floor of Congress. So I guess what I'm saying... What do I say is also that's like built into the structure of how politics are supposed to work. Maybe not the violent aspect of it, but the argument. There's supposed to be debate that the way the um, United States uh, framers thought of the Constitution was that they would create a system that would force interests, lots and lots of different kinds of interests to contest with each other. And you want fierce debate in a democratic republic, which the United States is, because that debate will lead you to better policies that serve more people. This is the kind of idea behind this. And so they build in uh, these kinds of barriers, these kind of boundaries within the systems. So you have all these stop gaps, And the other part of that is that they were sincerely afraid of the democratic impulse. They thought that if the elective franchise expanded too quickly, that you'd have these people who didn't understand how to mediate their own interests, who didn't know how to expand their personal self-interest to their communities, to their counties, to their states, to their country, that 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 ideal of expansive kind of sympathy between members of political communities, that's the basis of how a democratic republic functions. So for those people who are not yet ready for that, They build in these structures in the system so that debates, endless debates, parliamentary issues can create barriers to the more like passionate democratic impulses that these rabble might have. So there's like both a democratizing and an anti-democratizing impulse in the founding era.
0: And then there was also we were talking about before that. Not everyone was elected to Congress. They were appointed. Oh, so the, so the
1: Senate, yeah. So it's not until um, a constitutional amendment in the 20th century that um, Senate is uh, a popularly elected office. In a lot of states, senators are appointed um, by the state legislatures. So Congress, the House, is popularly elected and the Senate is not, by and large.
0: And that And that changed. And so... Um, in some ways, um, the way things today we have or have an opportunity to have more debate and have our debate in the public arena actually matter more because we get to vote those people in.
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about this also um, when I was looking at, through the questions, I was thinking about what it is that feels so saturated right now and why this period of time resonates For me as a historian, particularly of politics in the 19th century, especially the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, one of the things that I think they felt at the period and express was that you have this sudden saturation of a new type of media and like an unregulated popular type of media, the partisan press. And the partisan press is the only kind of press there is. Meaning partisan? What is partisan press? So a partisan press is uh, newspapers that are created with political ends. So uh, Trump would say that the Washington Post or the New York Times are a partisan press. The Washington Post, and the New York Times would say they are journalists. And to the extent that they lean left, that is a reflection of how truth is. Um, actually, I don't know how they would defend themselves. They, I mean, they talk about, about bias and reporting. We could talk about that another time. Um, but I would say, for example, that Fox News is a partisan press in that it relies on a that the state apparatus relies on it and it relies on the state apparatus to exist, that it creates a cycle of funding and investment, that it is closely connected to um, political movements and the success of individual candidates and that it spreads certain kinds of ideologies that it has commitments
0: so basically, like what and how, like that that affects the state, and the state affects it. I mean, it's like basic. Like Trump's on the toilet reading Fox News headlines, tweets out something, and that's not he's public. not he's not reading. Okay, <laughs> he watches some hot blonde on Fox <laughs> News, say something because that's, and then he basically tweets something, and then that becomes public policy. Like yeah. That's, so
1: in the eighteen thirties, you have um, the. Uh, like Amos Kendall, Blair and Reeves, these are big newspaper men of the time. They're also the ones who have the, the, their, the one of their papers, the Congressional Globe has like, they're the ones who publish all the Congress's stuff. So if you publish all, you get that, the Congressional Publisher contract, that's going to keep you afloat. It's a lot of money. And also you will then get reprinted over and over and over again because any time another newspaper is citing the what's happening in congress they're they're citing you those men are all in the kitchen cabinet in andrew jackson's kitchen cabinet so this close interconnectedness of media and politics that's not that's not new either but i think what the feeling was in the 1830s and and what you see also right now is this intense saturation it's the it's the Reach of media—it's that it feels constant, and I think the reason that feels similar. Another analog might be radio, right in the in the nineteen thirties. That this this feeling that you can't get away from politics—that's a very familiar feeling to the nineteenth century, to the eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties. And it's in part because you have a proliferation of a new kind of media: newspapers, popular newspapers. They they explode in the 30s and the 40s, the 1830s and the 40s. Just like now you have a proliferation of sources exploding and it feels huge because it's so so much more than it had been.
0: And it seems like there's a lot of fear because we don't actually know what that proliferation is going to mean in terms of public discourse and what that you know how public discourse will affect the state?
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I think it also makes sense to say let's look at what media does, and, and let's recognize that we always have this response. Historically, people have responded to new kinds of media with trepidation, especially in a democracy, because you you don't know what kind of impact it's going to have. And also, when you have a systematic weakening of the education system, you don't know that people
0: are going to have the in turn their own tools to be able to discern what's fact to fiction. Yeah. And let's talk about that. So the the founders basically had faith that if w- there was some sort of education system in place in which a populace could be able to consume information and understand what they were voting on, um, then that, that keeps a democracy being healthy. And now there's a fight back against education and Has it there always been a fight back against education? Is it basically going against what the founders (laughs) were wanted or did the founders secretly want that? You know, like what's the. Okay, so I'm not sure about faith, but I do know that they were deeply invested in different kinds of Republican
1: theory and that the essence of Republican theory historically is this idea that that individuals can have access to kind of higher thought, that each person is born with the capacity, the innate capacity to self govern
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that if you create a society that supports individuals reaching the level of education they might need, this kind of goes back to the kind of the idea of sympathetic Mm -hmm. um, polities, right? Sympathetic communities. The idea is that you have to develop your senses, you develop your nerves, you develop yourself through education, you refine yourself and that everyone who studied the same kinds of things and has been raised in the same kinds of institutions, that the more same they are, the more refined they become, the more able they are to create cohesive societies, but also that that education is essential to be able to do any of that. You can see there's two there's two lanes this can go down. Um, on the one hand, that's in part an argument for homogeneity or for assimilation towards in the case of the united states whiteness white christian cishet maleness etc that the ableness that there's like this kind of normative drive to make everyone similar in a very specific way so they can coexist that's one long-term effect of some kinds of republican theory especially if you're looking in the like uh like german natural philosopher vein right kant and and schiller etc the, the other kind of way this can go is to say that it is essential to any kind of Republican or Democratic Republican system that people are educated, that they're able to have critical thought, that they can have conversations, and that the education actually is to allow them to experience other people's interests. This goes back to humans and Adam Smith, theory of moral sentiments, that the way that you move past yourself and your own selfish interests is to, in some ways, experience in your body, the feelings of other people. And they theorized that the best way to do this, and this is kind of romanticism and also ties into organic nationalism. The best way to do that was through literature. So the liberal arts are actually based in the same period, this idea that you have to have a liberal arts education in order to be a good citizen.
0: The founders might have thought that, yes, people need to aspire to this level of education in order to do these things, but they limited who could vote. So do they actually not think everyone can do it? They were like, sure, yeah, everyone can do it, quote unquote, except the people we won't let vote.
1: Well, so there are different measures of interest. So part of that is like a really smart class critique. which should just say that, they thought that if you didn't physically own land, that that divorced you from interest, that you might be swayed by your boss to, ver- to vote in certain ways. And this was not just a critique. This is a critique of like... um wage laborers voting. And you have this kind of perpetual fear in electoral politics in the antebellum period, that, and not just in the antebellum period, I mean, U.S. history in general, that people's votes are being bought or that they're being coerced by their bosses. That wage labor, to some extent, is not as free as labor that extends from owning your own capital. Right. So this is I'm using kind of um, kind of Marxian terms to talk through this. But this is also the way that they are talking about it in the period.
0: So they didn't think that education could overcome that.
1: Yeah, that 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 interest could be measured in more than just education. It's it's really complicated.
0: <laughs> I'm sure this could be like a whole college course. But I think it's interesting to think about, like, even the founders were had some conflict In terms of thinking about can a populace be when is a populace ready to engage in a democracy and when are they not? Yeah. Also I want to make sure that I get back to so I know the class critique, but I
1: can't believe we've been talking for this long and I haven't brought up anti-blackness. So the other issue here is that all the 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 United States is founded, its constitution's written in this period of time when kind of like organic understandings of nation states were becoming more prominent in explaining how states were formed and how they became stable. So German organic nationalism, the the idea of nationalism is incubated in this exact same era. And the discussion around who should have these rights, the jurisprudence around who should have access to voting rights, for example, is intricately tied with enslavement and anti-blackness. So I, I don't want in any part of this conversation for like my class critique, this class critique here is also uh, essentially a critique of how the system of enslavement functioned to create capitalism, which we can talk about this time or next time. I do also want to note, right, that historically that as white wage earners like gained The franchise in the 1830s as in in 1840s democratization increased for white people it decreased for people of color so you often think of this kind of progressive triumphless forward march but people of color free people of color lost rights in this period and there's often an exchange right because there's an exchange for power that and that power in the united states redounds to white power and that's because of the way enslavement functioned in politics.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, there's this ideal about when American public discourse was great. Uh, isn't the I mean, a better they, term? they quoted yeah. a
1: lot of fancy stuff. That's kind of nice. I mean, as a person who has to read this for a living, just listen to people being awful. There is a period of time where people quoted Shakespeare and Byron and... Lord Acton, where people read extensively. But they're quoting those people in support of enslaving black people. So I don't have a lot of...
0: Yes, and they also got... (laughs) And they're also... Who was the people getting to actually have public discourse? Because I think that's really important to... Also, note yes. is that public discourse was great for who?
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's a great question. So public discourse is only available to a certain number of people, and those people are all white people, right? That you are not. That people of color, by and large, even free people of color, are prohibited from. By the time you the eighteen fifties, um, prohibited from being witnesses. That they are not. That you have the a gag. Rule that's passed in the 1830s in Congress that prevents, yes. What is that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the gag, so the gag, there's a gag order that's passed. Um, and it basically says that they will not receive petitions in Congress on the question of enslavement. Just straight up, they're just not, they're not going to receive it. Even though in the Constitution, it says that they have to. And so you have this kind of increasingly, uh, reactionary and violent um aggressive angry there's all this language right this defensiveness i, I talk about it as white fragility a lot um this defensiveness around enslavement where at first they won't even receive petitions and then people if you talk about it, if you mention it, it becomes a taboo subject so it's not just that people of color aren't in public it's that they are literally erased from the record and not only are their voices erased are they or they refuse to be given space for their voices but even the discussion of them because it, pro-slavery southerners and, and their allies right their northern allies they believe that the discussion of enslavement itself is is insane that is itself an act of war so you have these like uh, in 1835 there's like a number of riots it's, an, it's a record number of riots um some of which are referred to as race riots which should be better understood as white people killing people of color um and uh, on suspicion of being people of color i mean that's kind of it's just the way that white power has enacted itself right through violence okay so there are all these riots and so these conservative clubs pop up and these conservative clubs are these like northerners who are basically saying, You have to stop abolitionists, we have to stop all this discussion around in the slavery, that it's these these crazy people, William Lloyd Garrison and his immediateists, the ones who want immediate abolition, are actually sending tracts through the mail. So one of the parallels I think about here is between this period and Donald Trump. So Donald Trump has this thing where he's trying to uh, raise postage on Amazon as a way to punish Bezos. In the 1830s, um, you have Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun, both uh, Andrew Jackson in his presidential message in his State of the Union and Calhoun on the floor of the Senate, both putting up measures to censor the Postal Service. Yeah. The difference being that Jackson wanted to do it at the national level and Calhoun's like, no, I'm not giving the federal government that kind of power that I want the states to be able to keep it up to their standards.
0: Was there some sort of reason why that ability for people to communicate and that was like, uh, communicate and have discourse is not what Andrew Jackson had? They don't want people talking. It's the same way that um, Fox
1: News and Murdoch have conspired with big media companies to create. Areas where people only are in a fox bubble, where they actually don't have access to outside sources. The best way to create a community that is docile and dependent is to control the kind of media they consume and what what that information contains. So he doesn't want that pro-slavery southerners don't want people getting abolitionist literature. Mm. And they're doing the same. This is the, the the similarities sometimes. So the other thing you have is this fear, especially in the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, of like those elitist northeastern universities, right? Those <laughs> Ivy League universities with their radical fanatical professors who want free love and communism. This is not, I'm literally. those are quotes. I mean, that whole thing wasn't a quote, but they are using those exact words, fear of communism, fear of socialism, this idea that you have this kind of radicalism, but all of that is a dog whistle for anti-slavery politics. And they, they're they explicit about this, that they want to create their own institutions, that the South should build up these educational institutions because it's sending its sons to the northeast where they're being indoctrinated against their parents it's funny i was i was listening to a different uh an excellent podcast called know your enemy which is about conservatism and it's primarily about the 20th century so they're describing a similar thing happening in u.s politics more recently this kind of uh idea that Kids will go off to elite universities and and learn the wrong kinds of ideas, that they'll be radicalized, that conservatism, modern conservatism in the US, the self-identified conservative movement that starts in the 1950s, that that is about creating an, an education structure in this instance within larger institutions that will create the kind of people like a pop A pipeline of intellectual conservative intellectuals and conservative newspapers and conservative journals all attached to major institutions which is a variation on the idea that they had in the 19th century right self-identified conservatives in the 1850s saying that the only way to maintain the conservative institution of the south which is slavery the only way to maintain the conservative basis of the union which again is slavery to them is to create their own institutions to educate intellectuals to come up through the system.
0: So they basically created schools in which the curriculum was pro-slavery. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. And they were successful at doing that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, basically, a lot of the literature in the period... Is pro, like there's a lot of literature being pro slavery literature being written, and there's and there's um so uh, racial racial biology right the uh, the idea of race as a biological structure is created in the system um, medical disciplines proliferate so you have all of these schools that themselves arise out of this kind of like anti-blackness and that are, are based in the work, the labor, the production of people of color, but also like literally sci- the science is produced on the bodies of people of color um, and that that Northern and Southern institutions are built on the money made on plantations, right? So like, that this entire structure, also, it's not hard to have a pro-slavery or or an anti-Black pedagogy in the United States, that the real challenge that we face as a group of people is actually to have an anti-racist pedagogy, right? Or to have uh, an actual critique of the way that capitalism and American nationalism combined create a structure that requires a racial hierarchy, that Always is about violence against people of color.
0: And the building block of that is having a populace or a group of people or academic students at all different levels in the academic world. In order to make the, that analysis, you need to be able to have very strong critical thinking skills. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems from our conversations that that is not a priority in education today and that's there's it's not a mistake. It's not like oh oh there was so much science to teach that we forgot it's it's a it's a deliberate decision
1: yeah, so this is another really important parallel I think so starting in the 1980s I mean there's longer history this was basically starting in the 1980s um the Republican Party led by Lynn Cheney began to implement what eventually became No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind teaches to a test, right? It's all about tying in funding to test scores. And the idea was that that would allow them to hold people accountable. Except for that, it's a terrible pedagogy. That the best way to keep people from developing critical thinking skills is to teach to a test, to have right and wrong answers. And I can tell you as a person who works in universities and has been in them for a very long time now, and who's surrounded by people also who work in universities, it's a huge problem. We have students coming in who who just don't understand a question, the why question. They don't understand the why. And that's teaching critical thinking and also all of the base components of history.
0: I mean, if I may jump in here, like from personal experience, I remember being blown away. So I was really good. I'm really good at learning for the test. Like my teachers would say to me, you're just like, you're here to get Mm -hmm. to get your A. And I'd be like absolutely. Cause I'm getting the hell out of this whole place. I'm shaking the dust off of off my little Queens neighborhood and I'm seeing the world. I'm like, I'm out of here. So I was very deliberate. I was all about getting out. And then when I went to, and obviously I'm very different now. I, for me, to me, learning is, is my joy. And so when I went to Wesleyan, my first paper, they were like, you need a stronger thesis. And then I looked at someone's paper and saw what a thesis was. And I was like, that is an opinion. I can't have an opinion. I don't know enough yet. What does that mean? I can't. What am I? What do I know? I'm just like a <laughs> college student. I, don't I still know. feel that way. I, yeah, I can't have and like, yeah. But that's like the whole point is that you actually are supposed to have an opinion and back it up with your observations and facts and so much evidence and that's critical thinking so yeah and it was like liberal arts for me was like you have to analyze the world and analyze your media sources analyze what you're reading you need to dive into it yeah know when you're asking the wrong questions yeah how to ask yeah how to ask questions how to like not accept what you're reading as as you have to like, re- where's that person's point of view? Where are they mm-hmm. getting their sources? What is their real intention? Like, well, the other thing is this. And, that, yeah. that <laughs> It's crazy. No one knows how to do that. It's okay, so, so the, There's it's this so thing.
1: The Ruha Benjamin, who's this yeah. brilliant sociologist at Princeton, talks about speculative fiction. And her idea is that you have to create, that, that racism is a technology, right? It's a technology of power. And that because it's a technology of power, it's always going to advance more quickly than anti-racism, which has to be reaction has to be responsive. The only way to move past this kind of cycle, this kind of cycle where you're constantly feeling pushed and pulled by reacting to the horrors of someone else's racism of white of like the system of white supremacy and how pervasive it is, is to create speculative futures and then to examine those futures for the ways that we imprint our own assumptions. What's speculative future? So a speculative future is like an imagination of what the future might look like. At its best, what an education can do is it can grow your brain. You're a universe, right? This is like a Jewish ideal. It's also found in Islam that each person, each individual is a universe. It's one of the reasons I'm pacifist. Like murdering a is That's intense, right? <laughs> but that you can expand that, right? Uh, That you can expand and expand and expand. And as someone who um, had a kind of intense childhood, for me, I mean, I'm weird, right? Like I I grew up outside of D.C. My newspaper growing up was the Washington Post, which I read religiously, even as a small child, um, that as a kid, I found solace from what was a lot of chaos and death in my life, Um, in actually Holocaust memoirs primarily that through literature and through histories, I was able to step into other worlds to expand my world inside my head. And for me, that's a kind of escape place too, that I can always run across those fields, you know, that I can always go to one of those places that if you get a really, if you're, If you're able to have access to education to or to people who can have conversations with you, it doesn't have to be, I don't want to seem hierarchical about this. There's a lot of places education occurs, and I think there's a lot of really important work to be done outside of the academy. That's a whole other conversation. But that allowing ourselves to open ourselves to knowledge, that that's a gift. That theories can seem really arbitrary and strange, but they're thought machines that open us up to new kinds of ideas and new kinds of questions we wouldn't have thought before and that it's that that is liberatory whenever conservatives or whenever reactionaries want to prevent me from doing something two things one i want to do that thing and two i want to know why they don't want me to do that thing my experience is that when people try to prevent me from being educated about something it means i should probably find out about that thing that historically Restraining education from large groups of people is how white power has been maintained since the founding era. And and
0: types of education, meaning critical thinking skills. I would say less that, because I think that's about broader
1: pedagogies, but more about like the kinds of space we allow people to project themselves into. That um people talk about this like, oh, actually, you know what? We're both people who were in the performing world. If you don't see yourself on screen it can be really hard to imagine yourself becoming an actress, for example. Like, who would cast me? I look like such a Jew. But like, actually, you know, maybe? I don't know. That's still kind of like Mrs. Maisel. It's out. <laughs> it's, we're not sure. <laughs> right? So like, that, that if you don't that the the erasure of black history from American history, for example, right? Like a black history month, black history is American history. All of it, all of the parts of it, that to erase that out, but also that social justice movements owe themselves to the social justice movements created by people of color. That like working class movements, that a lot of the tools of trade owe itself to people of color mobilizing. So that in erasing Black history, you actually erase space for people to to walk into and to, to be in. And then also like, yeah, materially, you're preventing people from getting the skills they're going to need to make it to the next level in the way that this capital system is structured, because you have to have a certain kind of education to have access. And that's a whole different kind of question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So basically at the heart of it, that one access to education and and the kinds of thought necessary for a productive democracy has always been restricted and continues to be a fight. Yeah, and that always, a every, every yeah. generation, you got to fight for this stuff every generation. And also like public discourse has never been one available for everyone yeah. or two, like so genteel. Yeah. so, What is then, so, okay, so now that we know that, like, what are then some just ways that we can, because I think there's unproductive discourse and productive discourse. I mean, I think meaning maybe, and then how could we have more productive discourse if that's a thing, if there is an actual dichotomy between them, if we can have more productive discourse and how we might be able to do that. Wait, sorry, dichotomy between what? Like there's, if there's a difference between unproductive and productive. Oh, interesting.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think there is a difference between unproductive and productive discourse that like hate speech, for example, is not productive, except for in exposing hate. Yes. But in terms of productive discourse, how to build productive discourse, that's a good question. I think I have so many thoughts about this. One is I think it's really important always to push people on their ontological assumptions, by which I mean at the heart of the questions you're asking at the heart of the things you're arguing what are you assuming to be true or should be true and to be clear about that and also to think really seriously about what kind of institutions and structures your arguments are supporting and what kind of effects that might have so i'm saying that abstractly but what i mean by that it is this is that the problem with uh, mainstream analysis of current of conservatism, other than that, because my book isn't out yet, they don't have an idea about 19th century and the longer history of U.S. conservatism. So the mainstream analysis of conservatism imagine that conservatives can choose to adhere to a part of conservatism, economic conservatism, fiscal conservatism, for example, without embracing what they might consider the more pernicious facets of genomic or biological conservatism, the way that conservatism is based in a kind of thought about what the state should look like. And it it arises in this kind of idea about a biological nation state, an interconnected nation state that's connected by its genes, by its biology. But the racism that exists at the heart of U.S. conservatism, it's not incidental. It's like it's not a design flaw. It's a feature. It's a way of maintaining white power. So even if it's not intentional, that The fact that capitalism requires a hierarchy and that that hierarchy is historically and therefore institutionally and structurally racist against people of color, that means that if you're an economic or fiscal conservative, you have to recognize that the policies you're advocating are going to redound to white power, that it's going to be investing, further investing in a system of white supremacy. If you're a social conservative, also that you are creating structures and systems that privilege, for example, Christian nationalism, that is openly identified right now with white nationalism in the United States in present day politics, and that that is historically and institutionally anti Semitic, that these aspects of conservatism aren't incidental, and that if we want to have a real honest dialogue, we need to have a real conversation about what it means to go backwards in a nation state where backwards means enslavement. This is one of the things about originalism. I just, I find this baffling. And then amongst historians, everything I'm saying right now is just, this is not a surprising thing. We can, we can have tons of secondary literature in the notes if we want, but there's this real anxiety about being public with this kind of information because it's politicized. But this is the thing I don't understand. And I'm going to say this because it's Rosh Hashanah this weekend. So in the Old Testament, all the patriarchs, they're assholes on the regular. They all make huge mistakes. That's included. King David has his lover's husband murdered. Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister and pressures her to get down and dirty with some other dude, right? These are included because there's no pristine founding era. There's nothing perfect, nor should there be. You have to learn from the bad things and also the good things. But also, if it's your history, it doesn't matter if you recognize it or don't recognize it. It's still going to fuck with you. So unless you know it and confront it and deal with this trans and international structural system of trauma and abuse, you're
0: never going to move past it. And there's going to never be moving past it. We live in these structures. And this brings me to a question from uh, my character named Judy. She's the manager of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Um, I feel like I've probably met her you've before. You've probably met her before. Yes, I have a lot to say. Welcome to the Anti-Oppression Fruit Stacking Training. My name is Judy. I am the grocery manager here at the food cart. All right. Yes, I'm here. Yes, I have a lot of things to say. I have to get back to my fruit stacking training in just a few minutes. But listen. Old you, Judy? Old enough. <laughs> It's C. It's
1: C. I I' we always talking like second wave feminism. We're talking third wave feminism. Are you a boomer?
0: I'm, I'm coming off it. You know, I'm, I'm, it was the in-between. I saw the communes forming. I was there at the, at the not at the apex, more of the, of the, sun, <laughs> the sunset. The okay. And they were more my mentors. And so, and so I don't quite, it just seems that we're not building on one generation always. In that we don't always Mm. I understand that things are different now and I understand that I don't have a freaking idea sometimes what they're talking about. Yeah, I think it's possible they're just not
1: asking you. I do think actually there's been a lot of intergenerational conversation, a lot of reading and learning in the Black Lives Matter community, for example. People are reaching out and reaching up. Bernie Sanders might be a, a good example, right? Warren is currently leading the Democratic fold, that there is looking towards certain kinds of leadership, but that I think right now we have to recognize that it it takes a lot of work to be thoughtful in the public sphere right now, I think, to be ethical. And you have to demonstrate that you've done that work. And I think that's part of what it is. There's a little bit of uh, wariness to people who are involved, not that their tactics not might not work, right? But that the commitments that those tactics require, right? So, like, the common critique is against neoliberalism, that it requires an investment in capitalism, that this recreates these white, white supremacists, white power structures. So, like, even if it in the short term has positive effect on some people, it's creating this, it's recreating, it's a system recreating itself. So, I think... Or, or like, ooh, you see this with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden on the debate stage. This idea that Biden has that he can kind of just say that he's not interested or invested in the ideas he was invested in when he supported busing, that he's, he was acting, as he said, in good faith then, and he's since learned. But he hasn't demonstrated that he's done the work. He's just telling us he's done the work. I don't know what he's reading. I don't know who he's talked to. I don't know who he's listening to. What I want to know is that it's not that I don't think people of older generations have good ideas. I'm a historian, right? I think we have a lot to learn from lots of kinds of people, including dead people. But in fact, I think that a lot of what we have to learn is from radicals from prior eras who've written extensively. God, I'm reading like so much Audrey Lorde and Paula Ferrer right now. That's I mean, that's part of what I'm talking about, about growing your brain and talking to people who've had those kinds of experiences, I think, is really important to grow your brain. But I do think there's a wariness about who people invite into their brains. And unless you've demonstrated that you're like working hard to not recreate the bad stuff that happened in the other things. Yeah, I think there's a distrust.
0: Judy just got scared by that answer so yeah, she sorry. went back to, to um stacking her vegetables. <laughs> um I think well it's I think it, the point being is that when people feel not heard sometimes they want to point it to the fact that they, like they're feeling a rejection. So okay, they feel mm. rejected. Mm-hmm. But, and silenced, yeah, and silenced, and, and so, they are being silenced, and that's true. And then it's like <laughs> because when you there's t- other voices now. <laughs> when you take the ego out, yeah, you see that, and this is happening to many people uh, that they have to realize that. Do you understand the context in which you're you are talking, and why people might be? A little bit cautious about talking to you because of historically of what people in your group might have done. And that's just something that you have to deal with. Yeah, so I often
1: frame this as like welcome to humanity, basically. That kind of silencing erasure is a thing that most people who live in marginalized bodies experience on a regular basis. That entering into that kind of erasure having to be quiet when before you had a voice that that can be challenging but it's not more challenging than millennia of oppression <laughs> that actually you can take that you can take that burden as as a gift that what you're doing is accepting ownership over a thing you are already doing structurally yeah and here's another thing I'm, i've been thinking about a lot so Yom Kippur is coming up, and there's this thing between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur where you go to people and you apologize to them for things you've done to them, and they hopefully forgive you. You have 10 days to do that, and then on Yom Kippur, what you're doing is you're interceding for sins against God, basically. It's a collective repentance. All of the parts of it are we. And part of that is because there's this idea that you're part of a community, You're part of a community. And so that even if you didn't curse at your parents or whatever, you created a community where a kid cursed at their parents. Even if you are not a person who is overtly racist, you still live in a structure and in a society where that kind of racism exists, where racial hierarchies continue. And that means that in some way you are responsible for it. And that taking collective responsibility doesn't mean that there's not more or less agency between people who are doing the thing.
0: Yeah. And it's different than like you did. You told me blank, blank. And that is your responsibility. It's mm-hmm. not like because people get defensive, like, well, I didn't do blank. I don't say blank. I mean, blank. Here's, this is the other thing, right? That, that racism is a thing
1: that happens Inside of the body of the person you're doing it to, you don't get to choose whether or not the thing you did is a racism. You can do something, right? That I can enter a space as a person who lives in a, a white body, right? I'm white, walk into a space. Someone could have a reaction to me based on an experience with someone who looks like me. That has nothing to do with me, but that doesn't mean that the experience the person is having in their body isn't a real experience. That's where the racism occurs. It's assaultive in part because the person who's doing it isn't necess- isn't experiencing the pain or the negative repercussions. That the person if experiencing the assault is the person who can label it, and then by labeling it, they're invalidated, right? The anti it's similar with anti semitism that you can you you feel it, you know it's happening. That part of why these systems of oppression or forms of oppression are so. Uh, hard to eradicate is because they're structurally erased. They they are a kind of trauma that you can't give voice to. So I guess I don't understand not wanting to always do better. Because discourse is always changing, because norms are always changing, I'm going to say a thing or do a thing. And that thing is going to Create an experience for someone else. And that's going to be that's going to be a racism happening, right? I'm going to have produced that. And I can work my ass off. But I I can't control always what's going to happen when people see me or react to me. We're so defensive about people's reactions to us. But you don't you don't control it. And if you live in a body where you were able to experience people's reactions one-on-one is like, that's just their reaction to my personhood. And you didn't have to think about whether it was a reaction to your gender or your gender expression, your race, or your ethnicity, or your class, that that is a kind of privilege that you've had. That's like a, that's, that's a privilege that you've had and that nothing is being taken away from you. You're just sharing the burden a tiny bit more. Hmm. Great.
0: So, Danny, where can people find out more about you and follow things you're writing and your exciting book coming out? Well, they can follow me
1: on Twitter at Danny Holtz. Also, I'm at Oregon State University's Center for the Humanities, where I am working on a citizenship curriculum that will be out there for the entire world sometime in the future.
0: Great. Thank you, Danny. So Melania, does this encourage you to see that making XYZ great again might be a slogan that's based on ignorance of American politics? Why are you saying that I'm ignorant? No, Melania, I'm saying you should think- Think! Stop offending me! For the rest of us, here are a few things to keep in mind. Don't be fooled when people say public discourse is the worst now that it's ever been. Because it's kind of always been sucky, and it's up to us to make sure that marginalized voices are heard. Educate yourself. Expand your mind. The powers that be are scared of the populace who can think for themselves. So let's terrify them. And more ways to do that in the giveaway in just a second. We all have a lot to learn, okay? So listen, learn, and get better every time. Let me know how it goes. Before we go into the I don't care to do use segment, I'd like to do a few things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. Second, I want to thank everyone who's made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Raya jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Maddie McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Walters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Dr. Daniel Holtz for being such a wonderful guest. You can follow the podcast on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogiecom slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, we're giving away Dr. Daniel Holt's recommendations for further reading. She put together this list for us, and I've already ordered a bunch of these books from the library. It's very generous of her to do this, and you should definitely take advantage. And also on my website, to find out about some other exciting things going on, my book Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, comes out in March. And we're going out on a tour related to this book. And the tour name is The Melania Trump Roadshow, Get Out the Vote and Get Me Out of the White House of Garbage. And that's in May. And if you're in New York City, we actually have a few shows in March at the Tank, March 14th, 19th, 20th, and 21st. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire, and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So Melania, give us the top headlines in the I don't care do you segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. U.S. intelligence has determined that Russians are planning to meddle in our elections again. Coronavirus has made its way to Italy and onto Europe. The Democratic ticket looks more confused than ever, but I don't care, do you?